Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 148, Social Mobility, Getting a Raise in Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms. All right, to start with, I posted something to the Facebook community that I wanted to share with you here, because hopefully having a behind-the-scenes view of the show might help you understand how and why things are the way they are. So here we go. So on occasion, I get negative reviews, emails, and comments online regarding the speed of the show. And generally, the comments complain that things are going too slow, and that I need to hurry up and get to whatever the writer's favorite area of history is. And I have a lot of sympathy for comments like that, since I'm quite eager, despite my fear of covering it, to get to the Wars of the Roses. However, I think they betray a common misunderstanding of history and demonstrate why it's so important to handle the story in a way like this. The thing is, I'm really not going that slow. For example, the BHP has already covered more time in less episodes than Mike Duncan's History of Rome. People forget that the history of Britain is substantially longer than the history of Rome. Further, because of the way that history was taught for a very long time, people expect that the period between Rome and the Norman Conquest to be covered in, at most, eight episodes. And that's due to several issues, and here are a few that jump out at me. First, is because the Victorians kind of ruined history for generations through their obsession with Rome, the great man theory, and also their general whitewashing of what came afterwards. So thanks for that, guys. In fact, they hated the period after Rome so much that they gave the era horrible nicknames. The Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. A second reason for why this era is generally skipped over is because covering it is difficult largely because of the lack of sources, combined with the lack of coverage in the Victorian era that resulted in a paucity of material to be drawn from when compared with other historical eras. And third, because it's generally treated as if it's an unimportant period of history. And to me, that is absolute madness. Britain is essentially a blend of Celts and Anglo-Saxons. Genetically, those of us who are from the island are mostly Celtic. And culturally, a huge portion of our culture draws from the Anglo-Saxons. Even in the Celtic regions of Wales and Scotland, we can see the Anglo-Saxon influence upon the culture. This era, where the Celtic West and the Germanic East were fighting, this is the time when we see the development of what will become our modern culture. When the Celtic and Anglo-Saxon cultures begin to mix. And you could argue that it created a culture that's so potent that it spread out and influenced most of the world. Yet, because those writing the early treatises on history identified with the expansionist Romans and clung feverishly to their aristocratic Norman descent, one of the most important areas of British history is treated as an embarrassing and unimportant footnote to be skipped over. And that prejudice has lived on with most of the market of British history being focused upon people like Elizabeth or William the Conqueror, rather than the foundry that created the people that we are now. To see the Victorian bias, all you need to do is go to a bookstore and look at the history section. There, you're going to see a relative absence of books covering the 600 years of history between Rome's withdrawal and the Norman Conquest. And let me say that again, we're talking about 600 years that are often skipped over or condensed into a blip. It's criminal. And it's why most of you probably didn't know who Edwin was, or Penda, or Oswiu. 
and yet you almost certainly knew the name of Roman emperors who ruled a mere handful of years, a small fraction of what Edwin and Penda ruled. So I'm really not going super slow. It might feel that way because you're accustomed to most storytellers skipping over this rich and vibrant era of history, but I'm really not. And don't worry, we're still going to get to your favorite eras. But this show is definitely going to take longer than Mike Duncan's show. And that's because there's vastly more history to be told here. Seriously, the story of Britain eclipses Rome by several magnitudes. And speaking of that story, today we're going to wrap up this talk that we've been having on the development of the social classes in Anglo-Saxon Britain. Hopefully, when we're done, much like our talks on other matters like food, clothing, and warfare, you're going to have a fuller understanding of who these people were, what their lives were like, and where we come from. So this episode is going to be largely focused upon the growing stratification of society and how that would become a theme for much of the history going forward. But before we talk about that, let's have a look at an area of life that probably would have affected every single person in Anglo-Saxon Britain. And yet, it's an area that most people have enormous misconceptions about. So to start, I'd like you to imagine the household of an average Anglo-Saxon. Alright, that might be too open-ended. Imagine a farming household, and one with some children. Imagine their home life, their work life, how they relate to each other. Do you have it in mind? By this point in the show, you probably have quite a few things correct. You probably had them working a hide of land, which was enough land to support a household. They were probably living in rural settings, eating rather well in autumn, but having a rough time of it in summer because of the way harvests work. They were probably having to contend with either no medicine or terrifying horse dungy medicine. They probably had some misunderstandings regarding the nature of their new god, but still were nominally Christian, with probably some superstitions from their old religion clinging on. But my guess is that if you were going to have some errors, it would probably involve how the household and the farm life operated. There's a good chance that you imagine the man and any sons working in the fields, while the woman and any daughters handle the household matters. And only in rare occasions would any of the women be out in the fields. You know, a firm division of labor, right? Sort of like a medieval version of Mad Men. Well, the reality is that firm divisions of labor like that largely came about in the last 300 years. They're relatively new, and they came out of the Industrial Revolution. In fact, many of the assumptions you might carry with you regarding this era stem from the Industrial Revolution. It was at that point that we started to hyper-specialize, for example. And that did certainly make us more efficient, but at the same time, it also made us largely only good at a few things. Generalists have become increasingly rare following that social shift. But naturally, the period that we're talking about was way before that change took place. In fact, it looks like the household and work duties of lower-class homes were largely shared in this period. The upper class might have more divisions between the sexes, but for the vast majority of the population, this was still a roll-up-your-sleeves-and-share-the-load kind of situation. And that makes sense, since you'd want every able-bodied person in the fields during harvest, for example. And you'd also want all hands on deck for household issues, from everything to preparing food, to repairing clothing and household items, to child rearing. Yes, child rearing. You'd want everybody involved in that. Again, this isn't Mad Men. 
Unferth didn't come home from a long day in the fields and then kick up his feet and ignore the kids. He would have been very much involved in their development. In fact, I would be willing to wager that not a single one of you would have imagined a household with children and a single father. But that would have been a very real possibility. Dying in childbirth is not exactly uncommon. Giving birth was dangerous as hell in this period, and so you would have had quite a number of widowed fathers. Some estimates have placed the number of women dying in childbirth, or as a result of complications following birth, such as infection, to be at around 20 to 25%. Think about that. Between 1 in 5 and 1 in 4 women died due to giving birth. That would result in a lot of single fathers. And before you say, eh, whatever, the dude will just remarry, don't be too sure about that. If Unferth was wealthy, he probably could do that. But in our example, we're not talking about someone wealthy. We're talking about a farmer. And don't forget the concubinage episode, where we learned that women were being captured, sold, and bonded into concubinage by the upper classes. Which meant that there would have been a scarcity of available women for the men of the lower classes to marry. So the reality is that single fathers probably were rather common in this era. And even in situations where the mother survived, the fathers still would have been quite involved in raising their kids, helping around the house, and all sorts of stuff. And the women would have been quite involved in the fields. So to all of you stay-at-home single dads rocking it out on the playground, you're continuing in a long tradition of Anglo-Saxon fatherhood. And something else you probably imagined was wealth disparity. Your farming family was probably struggling to get by and keep everyone fed, while their lord was living quite well comparatively. And that is largely true, but it does give me an opportunity to point out something else that you might not have considered. You probably didn't imagine the family constantly fighting off bands of raiders. And that's because concentration of power isn't always unproductive. In general, in this show, when we talk about concentration, we're talking about massive out-of-control concentration. And as a result, it's generally treated negatively, because historically, when you see a society dealing with massive concentrations of power and wealth, there are usually rather challenging outcomes on the horizon. Things like stagnation, social unrest, or even total civilization collapse. However, I do like to be complete when I talk about things, and the reality is that some degree of power concentration can be useful. And one way is that it can prevent destructive behavior. For example, we have generally agreed as a society that the state has the exclusive right to violence. You can't just run around killing people and taking their stuff. Rather, only the state can be violent. And that is the result of a concentration of power, and it has ancient beginnings and for good reason. Individual feuding families unbound by any larger society might feel free to destroy each other's farms, for example. But if they're part of a tribe, their chief would probably want to stop that before it happened. And the reason would likely be that he draws income and food from those farms, and so their destruction would reduce his income, and he'd also have to suffer the costs of rebuilding them. And so by having a chief with a trained warband who could be deployed, you can see a reduction in internal violence. Further, society as a whole benefits from their presence because they don't have to individually develop their defenses and constantly be on the lookout for trouble from their neighbors. But rather, they have the ability to work together and the chief provides a certain degree of protection, which leaves them free to work in the fields. And this model generally plays out all the way up the ladder. 
and is one of the reasons why tribal groups are usually more stable than anarchy, kingdoms are generally preferable to tribes, and nations are generally more stable than kingdoms. Now naturally, when large nations go to war, especially with the wars of the 20th century, we can see destruction on a scale that individual kingdoms could never have accomplished. And that's led to some to question if there's an upper limit to this notion. But in general, especially at this point in history, having a top-down organization does help eliminate a good deal of strife and destruction of the infrastructure. So that's an example of a productive aspect of the concentration that we've been talking about. And with that in mind, let's get to stratification. So for the most part, we've been talking about the royals and how they're pulling away from the peasants. But there's another thing that's occurring on the island with regard to status. Because, you know, history is rarely black and white. And that thing is an increasing level of social mobility. And right now you might have thought that you misheard me, or that I misspoke. But no, you heard me right. Despite the increasing concentration of wealth and power that's been occurring as these dynasties have solidified their holds, we're also seeing increasing social mobility. It's crazy, right? And that's the real focus of what we're going to be talking about today. And frankly, the three to 400 year growth of social mobility is one of the most fascinating parts of this era of history. And we can see the beginnings of many social aspects of British life finding their start right here. And to a certain extent, this growth is somewhat self-evident. If the story of Anglo-Saxon Britain is one that transitions from societies of farmers and slaves being led by a king, to one where kings rule over large groups of farmers that are administered by a variety of officials, tended to by men of the cloth, protected by warriors, and served by tradesmen, by definition, you're gonna have a growth of social mobility, and also class differentiation happening. In fact, even by the point of history we're at right now, namely the mid-7th century, to figure out the precise status of a man, you probably have to ask a whole bunch of questions. And here are some of them. What's his wear guild? Who was his lord? What duties does he owe to his lord? Are those duties bound by birth or by contract? Who does he pay food rent and taxes to? Does anyone pay rent, taxes, or tithes to him? Is he a freeman? Does he own land? If so, how much and what are the terms? Is the land able to pass to his heir or does it revert automatically to his lord? Are there any who serve him? Is he obligated to serve in the military? And if so, what's his role? Can he move freely within the king's court? The point is, there are all sorts of questions that must be asked to sort out what a person's status is. Whereas in the early Anglo-Saxon period, all that you would have needed to ask is, are you free? And if so, are you a king? The answers to those two questions would quickly sort out roughly where you stood in the social ladder. So we're seeing an increase of ranking, and therefore, an increase of available movement. But let's quickly define what social mobility is so that we're all on the same page. What I'm talking about, ultimately, are people moving from one role or position to another, either up or down. Social mobility doesn't always result in a raise. It can also result in you finding yourself enslaved, for example. So that's what we're talking about. Now, typically, in any society, social mobility will come in three forms. Economic, meaning that losing or gaining wealth allows you to move up or down the social ladder. Cultural and social, 
And this form of mobility can come in a variety of forms. Marriage can result in moving up or down, for example. Also, with the prominence and fall of different cultural groups and different religions, you can find yourself being moved about. There are a variety of ways that cultural and social movements can change your status. And then we have political and military mobility. Examples of that are when you see individuals gain and lose positions of power through war, or annexation, or assassinations, or even enslavement. And obviously, these three types are not entirely separable. They influence each other, and they can't ever be truly separate from one another. And naturally, the Anglo-Saxons wouldn't have thought in these terms, but for the sake of ease, we're going to split them into these three commonly accepted categories. And we're going to start, of course, with economic. So in large part, with the appearance of these trading towns and the growth of wealth, as well as the appearance of Christianity and its integration into the power structure, we're seeing an acceleration of social mobility within Anglo-Saxon life. More people will be rising and falling through the ranks, and they're also going to be doing this at an increasing rate than the preceding generations, and it's going to continue for about the next 400 years. Basically, it's going to keep going until the Norman invasion. In fact, the differentiation is so complex that when looking at the Doomsday Book, it becomes very clear that the Normans did their best to figure out the rankings, but ultimately, they were a bit confused and befuddled at times which Bloch believes demonstrated a continuing lack of clear differentiation of social classes and also a fluidity of society. And to make matters worse, even the titles change in meaning and status over time. For example, there's a title that in the 7th century meant a high-ranking warrior, but by the 11th century meant a person paying rent and performing services for a lord's estate. That's a pretty big change. And I'm sure this mobility made things rather confusing. And looking at the Doomsday Book, I'm sure that the Normans would have much preferred taking over and running a census in the early migration period of the 5th century. Because back then, we pretty much just had three classes of society. The king, the peasants, and the slaves. But even by the 7th century, things had changed and grown much more complex. And the reason for this, in large part can be traced to an increase in prosperity. And that might seem strange to you, since we've been talking about the Anglo-Saxon period for quite a while, and the overwhelming sense you've probably been getting is that we have it really good right now. Our forebears were dealing with war, famine, plague, horse dung, all sorts of awful stuff. Further, hopefully what you've also picked up from this show is that if you imagine yourself living at this point in history, you should probably be imagining yourself tilling the soil, living hand-to-mouth, and paying food rents to your superiors. And, not only that, but the law wasn't really going to be forgiving, or on your side. But rather, it would be on the side of the nobility. For example, in some legal codes, we see that repeatedly failing to pay your food rent wouldn't just result in the loss of your land, but also the loss of your life. So if you're a farmer, and you have a bad harvest, you probably should make sure that you still pay your food rent, even if that means that you and your family will go hungry. And as a result of your required rents and services, it's very unlikely that you would have any saved surpluses from prior years. Yet by law, you were bound to provide services and rents before your own needs could be taken care of. And actually, some of these duties and rents were so brutal that later in history we're going to see royal tax collectors getting murdered. 
the agricultural wealth of the land was relentlessly extracted, and the surpluses from that extraction created substantial difference between those who were taxed and those who received the taxes. In fact, I think Hunter Blair said it best when he said, quote, The one generalization about Anglo-Saxon agrarian community upon which all seem to be agreed is that the condition of the peasantry was markedly worse in the latter part of the period than it had been in the earlier, end quote. As this concentration continued, things just kept getting worse. And that does seem to be true. Many freemen were living on far less land than their forebears, for example, and were struggling under onerous taxes. And actually, it's even worse for bonded farmers, who were not allowed to leave the land without their lord's permission, were unable to gain access to the law, but instead required their lord to intercede for them. So if you had a legal complaint against your lord, good luck. And also, they only had a home to live in on the condition that their lord was satisfied with the services the bonded man was providing. So essentially, they were legally and economically trapped in their meager situations. So when I say prosperity, you might be a little bit incredulous. But while the vast majority of people were living like that, those at the top of the social scale were actually quite prosperous. And the land had been organized by this point in history to a sufficient level to support the maintenance of the aristocracy and also the church, both of which demanded quite a bit from the lower classes. Essentially, the careful development and care of the land that was undertaken by the masses of unnamed farmers over the generations had created an environment where now there were significant surpluses, and those were enjoyed by those who reigned. And actually... This vertical concentration didn't just occur at the secular level. We also see the clergy behaving very much like their noble counterparts, steadily acquiring land from kings and other nobles, expanding their retinues, and drawing substantial incomes from the territory that they controlled in the form of tithes, as well as rent from dependent tenants. This was so effective that there were certainly some members of the clergy who were living as well as someone of the rank of Thane, and even village priests typically lived better than their status as an ordinary villager would have afforded them. I'm sure I'm not surprising you here, but basically, it's better to tax than be taxed. And with the concentration of much of this wealth towards the top of the social order, that provided some members of society more free time. And that increase in free time, combined with the introduction of new technologies and ideas, allowed people to pick up new trades. Further, with the wealth and stability, we're seeing an increase in demand for new goods and services, including luxury items. No longer were people focusing mostly upon just food and shelter. Now, with the wealth that was gathering at the top of the pyramids, the wealthy members of society wanted to get new fancy clothes and accessories, weapons, and technologies. As you probably remember, this was a gifting culture. So a good noble who wants to keep his warband happy definitely would have been in the market for luxury items to give to his warriors, like gold and garnet cloisonne fittings for a sword. And with that demand came more opportunities to specialize and fulfill the market needs. And so with the appearance of these new technologies and available jobs, we have social mobility. Naturally, because this is still a food-based economy, social movement is a bit harder also, some people were tied to the land rather than having the freedom to just uproot and leave an area. But despite all of that, 
there still appears to be movement. After all, there were now jobs available beyond slave, farmer, and king, which were largely the only jobs available in those early days. But now, if you had the right talents, the right opportunities, and the right kind of family, you might be able to fill one of these new roles that were popping up in society. There were warriors, blacksmiths, carpenters, cobblers, monks, courtiers, craftsmen, traders, you name it. Moreover, with the concentration of power up towards the top of the pyramid, namely the king, we're seeing an explosion of opportunities within the king's retinue. Now, admittedly, the number of these positions within the king's circle is so small in comparison to the population that it really wouldn't make any impact on employment percentages. And actually, people working directly within the king's inner circle would have likely been drawn from the appropriate rank. So courtiers probably didn't impact mobility all that much. But there wasn't just the king's retinue. There was also a need for administrators, officials, guards, additional warriors, individuals tasked with keeping the king's peace, builders, butlers, chamberlains, and soon they would need people to mint coins, and naturally guards to keep people from nicking those coins. The end result of all of this was that there were new opportunities that were starting to become available, and that enabled people to move around in the ranks. Moreover, we've just been looking at the men, the rank of a woman in those early days was tied directly to the rank of her husband, or her male guardian. But beginning at around this point in history, and growing in prominence through to the Norman Conquest, we're seeing women at the upper end of the social ladder increasingly having their status liberated from the men in their lives. And this would progress even to the point where you would have women outside of the royal dynasties that still had a rank that was independent from that of their husbands. So right here, we're starting to see the beginnings of social rank splitting into far more than just the starting three, the king, peasants, and slaves. And a big part of that had to do with this growth of prosperity in Anglo-Saxon Britain. And that was really starting to accelerate at this point in time. And it was giving rise to positions that wouldn't even have existed generations before. Now, you might be thinking, wait, with the growth of prosperity and this stratification, wouldn't the ranks just lock down? Wouldn't the son of a thane be destined to just be at the rank of a thane and the son of a churl destined to be at the rank of a churl? Well, Anglo-Saxon Britain had an interesting combination of prosperity and violence. Oh yes, this era was very violent. I'm looking at you, Oswiu and Penda. And as a result, there were some positions that were opening up, and there weren't always sons available. And that necessitated individuals from outside moving in. And sometimes, those people would be from other social classes, with fathers who were either above or below the station that they were now filling. And that doesn't even take into account situations where you had people and lines ousted from power, as was repeatedly happening in Northumbria. And that kind of makes me think that maybe Northumbria was the most socially mobile kingdom out of all of Britain. But you better watch your back and make sure you support the right king if you live up there. And while we're talking about people dying, and thus leading to mobility, I should point out that it wasn't always in war. Don't forget the shocking amount of horse dung that we're dealing with at this point in history. This period had a rather high mortality rate, regardless of war. And historically, that has tended to lead to social mobility. 
After all, someone needs to do these jobs, and if there weren't people of the right class available, just by sheer necessity, there will need to be someone either moving up or down in the ranks to fill the position. Though I should point out that, in Anglo-Saxon Britain, as is the case with all societies, issues of famine and sickness were far more of a problem for the poor than for the rich. So don't think this is going to result in a huge amount of movement towards the top. But the number of rich being affected by famine and sickness wasn't zero. So some roles would have had to have been opening up due to mortality. And considering that warfare tended to be the province of the warrior class, you would have a disproportionate number of the upper classes dying in battle, just like you'd have a disproportionate number of the lower classes being affected by famine and sickness. So yeah, Bottom line, we have lots of new jobs and opportunities, and there would have been some people who would have had to move in class in order to fill some of them. Now, you probably already know this, but I should point out that these jobs weren't available to the slaves. Similarly, in large part, they weren't available to the unlanded farming class, and even the churls, who were the landed farmers, found movement to be very difficult due to their social insignificance, despite the fact that this was an agriculturally based economy. And actually, it looks like the Thanes were working pretty hard to keep the churls from rising in the ranks. And we can say that because we can see them restricting access to the churls from gaining five hides of land. Because if you had five hides of land, you'd no longer be a churl. By definition, you would de facto be a thane. And the thanes apparently didn't want to let new people in. So, even with the introduction of towns and markets, it's almost a certainty that only a very small proportion of churls would have been able to improve their station by moving from agriculture to a position supported by trade. This would have been mostly the province of the upper classes. And frankly, even if churls were moving in there, there just weren't all that many positions. By the time of the Norman Conquest, no more than 10% of the population would be working in an urban environment. So even with the growth of mobility that came as a result of towns, this generally just wasn't available to the majority of the population who were working in agricultural positions. But if you were a thane, for example, you and your kin might have enough clout to be able to move in those directions. Okay, so how do we figure out these classes that are popping up and how they relate to each other on the social scale? Well, that's surprisingly hard to do. You might think that the easiest place to look would be the Ware Guilds. After all, we're pretty close to the arrival of the Laws of Inna, which were created by King Hlothera of Kent. And in those laws, we do have a list of various Ware Guilds. And with the codification of these Ware Guilds, we can roughly determine how much murder costs depending on the victim's class. Because let's be honest, that's what we're talking about here, how much it costs to kill somebody. And if we compare those values to their status, we can roughly say that a high-status warrior is worth about six times the value of a free farmer who owns a single hide of land. And that free farmer is worth about four times that of a slave. And that is interesting, but it doesn't tell us as much as we wish it did. For example, while it does tell us that elder men are worth much more than regular old churls, the laws also seem to imply that there are differences between the status of one churl and another. Further, it pretty much tells us nothing about how religious individuals fit into this scheme, but it is implied that they had their own separate hierarchy. And to make matters worse, all of these laws were just for Kent. So then we're forced to ask, 
Is a churl of Kent worth the same as a churl from Northumbria? Even if you had a perfect accounting of land holdings and economic power, how do you even begin to quantify the relative status between members of different kingdoms and different social ladders? Looking at this stuff from this period is just kind of a mess, you know? But the laws of Inna do tell us that a noble could kill a farmer without breaking a financial sweat. But a farmer could never afford to kill a noble. And that gives us a sense of how this society was structured and who that organization was set up to benefit. Further, we're learning from these laws that no longer was life just separated into three basic classes. Now there are all sorts of roles and class values in society. And roughly, they seem to be organized with the slaves and bondsmen at the bottom, reeves and freemen in the middle, and sheriffs and eldermen towards the top. And then the king and his dynasty sitting right up at the top. So we have a more stratified society. And from the implications within it, even those roughly drawn classes have micro-hierarchies within them, with one freeman being worth more than another. And actually, that tells us another thing. Specifically, that while there are large groups, we can't assume that they were strictly defined. And I guess that makes sense. We even see it in today's society. I mean, if I incorporated the BHP, I guess that would make me the CEO. But by no means would I be on the same social rank as the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So what we're seeing is a growing and accelerating of social distance, not just between the dynasties and the poor, but also with respect to prestige, duties, and powers that attach to the various political and military ranks. It's all just growing more separated. And with the appearance of these new roles in society, and men moving into these positions, just by sheer force of how society was arranged, we're seeing men moving up and down in status from the positions that were occupied by their fathers. After all, in the early days, lateral movement into a new trade or occupation just wasn't possible. And even later on, when we're just seeing the expanded markets and development of the infrastructure, the demand for new workers would still necessitate new blood being introduced into the workforce. Just looking at the sheer numbers of birth and death rates, based on nothing more than sheer mathematics, we can surmise that it would be impossible to fill every role with someone from a similar social status. In fact, Bede at one point wrote a letter to the Archbishop of York about his concern that there weren't enough locations where sons of nobles and veteran thanes could have a suitable estate. And from the records, it does appear that to be a thane you have to control at least five hides of land. So already, by the time of Bede, the land was getting organized and concentrated to the control of the dynasties and religious orders to such an extent that there just wasn't enough land left to split up between all of a man's sons so that they could have the same status as their father. And as a result of all of that, the sons of the upper classes might have been forced downwards. And this wasn't just a problem for the upper classes. There was also an explosion of sons of churls who were seeking a hide of land for themselves. But as the Anglo-Saxon era progressed, there were fewer and fewer open hides of land that could be granted. And so the son of a churl might find himself being unable to even reach the same low rank as his father due to nothing more than his inability to find a lord who could grant him a hide of land. So basically, with the growth of both the economy and also the population, not everyone was destined to fill the role that was once held by their fathers. And that leads to mobility, 
though probably not in the direction that they would have liked. And it's part of why we see the children of nobles starting to occupy religious houses. And actually, that brings something up. So, in large part, we've been talking about the mobility that results from economic shifts. But we also have cultural and social mobility. And we've already touched upon one form of it earlier in the show, which is through joining the clergy. Joining the clergy could result in an increase or decrease of status depending on your background. For example, a villager becoming a priest would certainly be a step up, and as I mentioned earlier, your standard of living would almost certainly improve in the process. But if you're an eighthling entering a monastery, unless you became an archbishop or something very high up, that would almost certainly be a step backwards. But another form of cultural and social mobility is marriage. Marrying into a good family could definitely increase your station. And if you're a woman, especially in the early period where your rank was tied directly to that of your husband's, it could also, if you marry badly, result in a significant step backwards. However, the royal dynasties had this all figured out pretty early, and that's why you typically don't see a lot of ruling family members marrying outside of their own class. So while this option was theoretically available for moving up, it's debatable whether it really resulted in all that many shifts in class. So generally, unless you were joining the clergy, there really weren't all that many cultural ways to move around in the social classes. Unless there was an ouster, and the ruling class moved from one cultural group to another. For example, the shift from British to Anglo-Saxon rule, or the shift from Anglo-Saxon to Danish rule. When there's a shift in cultural groups taking control, that could result in either an increase or decrease of your status. However, in general, that comes about as a result of war. So, let's just talk about the impact of war upon social mobility. Well, if your cultural group either became the preferred group or an underclass, that would definitely change your station. And honestly, even among rival kingdoms, like between Bernicia and Deira, that was probably a reality when the dynasty from one or the other kingdom took the throne. But I really suspect that the most obvious and common movement that resulted from war would have been slavery. Even in the pre-conversion era, right from the early Anglo-Saxon days, slavery was rather common. Now, as we discussed in earlier episodes, this wasn't chattel slavery like what happened in the United States, but rather it would have been closer to the Roman form of slavery. And judging from the records, Slavery was a part of Anglo-Saxon society for its entire history, though it did decline rapidly after the Norman Conquest. Even by the days of the Doomsday Book, 10% of the population were enslaved. Think about that. One in 10 people were slaves. And because that's the first census that was ever taken, it's impossible to know if that's higher or lower than the earlier Anglo-Saxon days. On the one hand, the earlier centuries were before the church was powerful enough to really start pushing for freeing slaves, like it was doing in the 10th and 11th centuries. So maybe there were more slaves in the earlier days. But on the other hand, we see that the laws of Inna forbid selling slaves overseas, though it is silent on keeping them in Britain. So maybe there were less slaves. Who knows? We can't really figure out the exact numbers prior to the Norman Conquest. But from the account of Pope Gregory all the way forward, we see records of English slaves. And we also know that it was a thriving trade in London. 
So this was definitely a thing. And so if you found yourself on the wrong side of a battle, you very well can find yourself going from being a highborn noble to a slave. And this could occur with the interkingdom fights that we've been discussing in the show, and later on with the Norse raids, it could also occur at the hands of the terrifying Scandinavian raiders. But interestingly, it does look like encounters with the Norse could go both ways. For example, there's a record of the Norse freeing Anglo-Saxon slaves, and then those Anglo-Saxon slaves turning around and enslaving their thane, which is kind of hilariously ironic, and is a good example of how quickly your status could change. And it wasn't just war and invasions that could lead to enslavement. If you were a freeman and there was a drought, you might find yourself in the awful situation of having to decide whether or not to risk your family starving to death, or whether or not to sell yourself or a family member into slavery in order to make it through to the next harvest. It's brutal, and it was probably heart-wrenching, and there's no good answer there. But that was the reality that people were living under. Now, there were also mechanisms where you could acquire your freedom in Anglo-Saxon society. So what we see is that there's actually social mobility, even between the fairly stark boundaries of slave and freeman. And actually, someone could travel between those lines in both directions within a single lifetime. Alright, what other forms of mobility could occur from military and political changes? Well, over time, military services became both more professional and also more prestigious. So simply serving as a warrior might afford greater status than one's ancestors who filled that same role. But beyond the simple growth of status of the role, a successful conquest could result in a rather significant amount of mobility for a surprisingly large number of individuals. It would go up for those on the winning side and down for those on the losing side. Now, Penda, in general, didn't grab land, but we will see other kings who weren't so shy about it. And when that happens, it tends to result in a whole restructuring of the network of nobles in the newly acquired territory. And actually, even in the case of Penda, his method of control resulted in new positions opening up, and also resulted in a loss of status for those on the losing side. What Penda was doing wasn't forming a single kingdom, like it seems that other kings would later want to do. But rather, he appeared to be forming an empire, where he had kings answering to him. And we can see evidence of that in the Battle of the Windwade, where he had drawn 30 nobles to fight with him. This man was building an empire. And so, he organized a system where lower groups answered to an appointed noble. For example, his son, Peda, ruled over the Middle Angles, and then Peda answered to him. Such an organizational structure with cascading tributes not only would have altered the status of a wide variety of people, but it also would have required new administrators, new nobles, and all sorts of people. And that would have resulted in the appearance of new roles that needed to be filled, even though in general, Penda wasn't directly grabbing the land. And this growth, either through usurpation or empire building, would have resulted in an expansion of roles that would have to be filled rapidly. And by its nature, that almost certainly would require at least some number of individuals from higher or lower status to fill those roles. However, there just wasn't a ton of upward mobility. I mean, when you consider the efforts being placed even upon preventing churls from becoming thanes, it's pretty clear 
that the upper classes wanted to maintain a monopoly. And you even see it with the increasing issue of sons of churls being unable to find hides of lands. And thereby, they were losing bargaining power, and the rights of the churls started to decline due to a flood of people who were desperate to fill that role. This just wasn't a matter of a rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, even families who were holding tenancies tended to pass them down from father to son, along with their duties to pay rent and also their duties to perform services. So, as Runkeman pointed out, the conclusion is inescapable that while there was individual upward mobility, there was collective and extensive downward mobility that was occurring towards the later Anglo-Saxon era. The expansion of the ruling dynasty and the concentration of wealth and power resulted in those who weren't part of the ruling dynasty being pushed ever farther down in status. And even those who were members of the ruling dynasty, if they weren't close enough to the king, they could find themselves filling roles that, while they might be significantly better than churls, were still a step down in status from what their dad held. But even if it was mostly downward, there still was mobility. And based upon what we know, it's entirely plausible that from this period forward to the Norman Conquest, every generation probably had a greater chance of increasing or falling in station than that of their parents, however modest their status might be. So there's definitely mobility within certain circles. But a large section of society generally had a bit of a ceiling on it. And so moving up significantly could typically only occur through conquest. In fact, all authorities agree that we see a continual strengthening of royal power, and that by the time of Alfred, thanks to the bolstering of kingly rituals and the support of the church, that dynasty was on a trajectory to grow significantly into the future. So with that in mind, it's a weird dichotomy to have both mobility and also a growth of royal power. But that's largely what we have. And I've been struggling to find a way to make the economic situation concrete and real for you, because I think it's really important to discuss how rigid the social hierarchy was becoming, and why it was so firmly in place, and how, despite all of these new jobs that were appearing, upward social mobility wasn't truly available. Essentially, what we're seeing is people slicing up a small piece of the pie into very small segments, while the biggest chunk is being held by the dynasties. But the question that I kept coming back to as I wrote this episode was how do I make this real? And I think I have a solution for that. But before I get to it, I want to make very clear to you that this is not a perfect analogy. And it's intended simply to provide an exemplar of the differences that we're talking about here. It isn't exact, and I'm merely trying to use modern examples of life and economic forces in order to explain a little bit of the relationships between the royal dynasties and everyone else. Cool? Okay, so if I ask you to think about a modern parallel to a king, you would probably think of a world leader, maybe the president of the United States. But I think that's a mistake. First, because kings weren't nearly as constrained as most of our modern leaders are. But beyond that, they also held vastly larger portions of the kingdom's economy than modern leaders do. Kings in this era essentially owned all the land. They could let you use it, but ultimately, it was theirs, and they had the right to reclaim it whenever they wanted. And this was a time when the economy was driven by food. And that means that land equaled wealth. So when you think about the dynasties, don't think of modern leaders. 
Think of an entire family of Bill Gates. Bill Gates is currently worth over $77 billion. And actually, despite donating about $26 billion to charity over the years, his wealth has grown by about $9 billion last year alone. Bill Gates is rich on a scale that is damn near impossible to imagine. I mean, he's worth about 6,328 times more than President Obama. And get this, last year, Bill's net worth expanded 737 times the total value of the president's net worth, meaning that if the president just wanted to keep pace with Bill's growth, he would need to duplicate his own wealth 737 times in a single year. And even then, he wouldn't be catching up to Bill, he'd just be keeping from falling farther behind. And that's after he's given a bunch of money away to charity. So I think we could all agree, that dude is crazy rich. And here's the thing that's going to blow your mind. If you look at percentages of GDP, these kings were wealthier than that. That's the scale of wealth that we're talking about here. Bill has a decent chunk of the national economy, but those kings had a far bigger piece. We're talking about a situation where almost all the available wealth in a kingdom, meaning the land, was ultimately held by a single dynasty. At least until the notion of bookland came into fashion. And even then, the ruling dynasty still held most of it. And that's not the only way that these kings were way more powerful than Bill. I mean, Bill doesn't even have a private army. He doesn't have the right to enforce his will through violence. He can't take your lands away from you on a whim. And he doesn't claim to be appointed by God, at least as far as I know. But these kings did. And they were absurdly powerful. In fact, part of the reason that we have this explosion of trade is because these kings had so many surpluses from their food rent, so many cattle, bales of hay, containers of honey, and so on, that they could never hope to be able to ever eat at all. Even with the help of their court and their many feasts, they still couldn't eat everything they were collecting. They had to trade it, or they had to give it away or just let it go to waste. That's the scale of wealth that we're talking about here. Just based upon how many resources they were receiving, unless they went out of their way to acquire access to trade centers and then sent their surpluses to market, they would have to either give away a good portion of their food or just let it go to waste. And ironically, when they were giving stuff away, the royal gifts generally went to land-holding nobility. And those were the people who least needed such gifts, as they also drew food rent themselves. Now, as we talked about in the feasting episodes, there were occasions when the nobles might invite their peasants to feast. But in general, by the very nature of the food rent and the gift-giving society that they lived in, once those surpluses got up towards the top of the ladder, they mostly stayed there. So if you're a peasant working the land, you might be a really talented farmer, and you might even have a shiny new plow. But the only thing that mattered, the land, well, that was theirs. And you had to pay food rent and almost certainly also perform services in order to even be on it. Even if that food rent wasn't needed. Now, as we've been talking about, we have all these new jobs appearing in what looks like social mobility. No longer were you destined to just be what your father was. With the added wealth, stability, and new technologies, provided you have the right family and backing, you could be a king's huntsman or a courtier or a professional craftsman. There were all kinds of jobs that were appearing, and the instinct is to look at this 
and think that life was getting less stratified, that life was moving beyond being simply separated between slaves, peasants, and the ruling class, as it had been in the early days. And that with all these new opportunities, it would be easier for people to move up in the ranks. But the reason why I brought up Bill, and the reason why I'm going into so much detail on this, is because we're seeing less movement between the two real classes, the ruled and the rulers. Not more. And that's because these dynasties were so impossibly beyond the rest of the people. True, there are a lot of new jobs. But what's happening when you look at the economic structure of the time is that these people were just dividing up the peasant class into a sort of micro-hierarchy. And when you consider our model of the kings, someone who's many magnitudes beyond Bill Gates, is there all that much difference between these various professions when you consider the concentration that's happening at the top? I mean, when you consider the wealth and power of an unlanded farmer, a craftsman, and hell, even someone like a minor thane, functionally, there's just not a lot of difference between them as far as wealth and opportunities go when you compare them to super Anglo-Saxon Bill Gates. So what I'm driving at here is that the peasant class really didn't go away, nor was there really a creation of a middle class. There were just new jobs that popped up that allowed people to stay productive. But everybody was essentially in the same economic situation they were in before. At most, they were just jockeying around to be the most well-off peasant than the others while the king and his dynasty held all the land, and thereby, all the wealth and power. It was their world. The peasants were just living in it. And the dynasties were doing a great job at solidifying their hold on that power. Once the lines of Ida, Cherditch, and others started to draw food rent to themselves, and later trade income, they started to pull away from the peasants at an increasing speed and solidified their holds on power. And it was done so intensely that in general, you only see members from the royal dynasties able to take and hold a throne. Even Cromwell in his civil war wasn't able to break the power of the dynasties. And one of the reasons for that has to do with just sheer gravitational forces upon the economy. Something that you've probably heard, and you likely intuitively understand, is that money makes money. The concept behind that in our modern day is that the wealthy tend to invest. And the reason that they do that is that the rate of return on investments tends to outpace the growth of the economy. What that means is that once you have a certain amount of capital available, over time an invested dollar will generally grow faster than the economy itself. And I'm guessing that makes sense. After all, if it didn't trend in that direction, why would anyone bother investing? But as a consequence of that market behavior, just based upon the structure of the system, those that are wealthy generally pull ever farther away from those who are not. To put it another way, their slice of the pie is almost always growing. And it's growing faster than the pie itself. And that's part of why Bill's lead on the president was able to expand by $9 billion in a single year. And actually, from the data, this seems to be true even for those who lack any skill or particular gifts with investments. And that means that it's very likely that even the Kardashians will probably continue to outpace the national economy and the rate of inflation and get ever more wealthy, not due to any inherent skill, but simply based upon the gravitational forces at work. Well, these kings and their dynasties didn't have hedge funds and stock markets, but they did have surpluses. And with those surpluses, they are able to take advantage of opportunities and technologies to further expand their wealth. 
We've talked about this back in the old Roman episodes, where you had wealthy farms that took advantage of essentially industrializing, and that allowed them to produce far more grain per plot of land than the smaller subsistence farms. Well, we see stuff like that here as well. Money makes money. And so, in those early days, you had people like Churdich and Ida wanting their children to have advantages that they didn't, and to inherit their position. And over time, you had a formation of ruling dynasties. And eventually, they moved into religious houses and trading towns and expanded their power base. And on top of all of that, just based upon the opportunities that their wealth was affording them, they were able to further solidify their hold on power. And so what we're seeing is the formation of a hierarchy that ensures that the ruling dynasties have the exclusive right to rule. You typically don't see anyone from outside of the dynasties take the throne. And even when they do, like when Cromwell gave Charles an extremely close shave, the dynasties tend to return within a generation. These dynasties are firmly entrenched and quite jealous of their privileged status. And that theme, which will become a common one in the show, is finding its beginnings right here, with a concentration of wealth and power so complete that the vast majority of the population simply cannot catch up with these families. And they increasingly isolate from the common people and only mingle and marry amongst their own circles. So when you consider the scale of wealth and power that's concentrating, and you're hearing about the appearance of these new classes, the blacksmiths, huntsmen, courtiers, and cobblers, Try and remember that simply based upon the forces of their economy and how stratified and concentrated wealth and power was, for the vast majority of the population, it didn't matter how hard they worked nor how good they were at their jobs. They simply were never going to be able to leave the peasant class. Furthermore, with the increasing competition to acquire a hide of land, not only were the sons of free farmers finding it ever more difficult to hold the same status as their fathers, but just based upon how flooded the workforce market was and how concentrated the hold on land was, the churls were in an ever weaker position to bargain with their lords. And this probably resulted in churls promising ever greater food rents and services just to maintain their status. So while there is some degree of individual upward mobility, with a very clear ceiling towards the top, and it probably wasn't even glass, it sounds more like this was a steel ceiling. Well, while some lucky individuals were able to improve their status a bit, there was also a massive collective downward mobility, with people either being unable to obtain the same status as their fathers, or finding that a title held by their forebears just didn't carry with it the same status and rights that it did in prior generations. And this mobility would continue to accelerate for the next several hundred years. So in general, when we talk about these new professions and the relative status of them, we're basically seeing that rather than focusing upon how far beneath the royal dynasty they were, and how that distance was growing ever greater, the lower classes were essentially developing a micro-hierarchy at the bottom of the social order, where they were still at least above someone. Unless they were slaves. Okay, that was a really long one. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed researching and writing it. I'm sorry this episode is a little bit late, but as you can tell, there was a hell of a lot of research that went into this one. Now, if you'd like to be more involved in the BHP community, and I think you should be, you should head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. There, you're going to find all kinds of ways to get involved, ways to get into the Facebook community, Twitter, Tumblr. There's even a Pinterest. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And of course, you can always just email me. 
My email address is thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>